Good morning. And may it please the court, counsel. Um, five years ago, in County of Dakota versus Cameron, this court set forth a pretty clear description of how attorney's fees are supposed to be determined under Minnesota Statute 117.031. The question, therefore, is why are we back here doing that again in this case? And I think the answer to that question has two parts. And the first part is that, from my perspective, unfortunately, the Cameron decision began its discussion of the attorney's fees question by stating, the threshold inquiry presented in this case is whether we should adopt the federal lodestar method as the standard of awarding attorney's fees under Minnesota statute section 117.031. <clears throat> the court then proceeded to describe a lodestar method that by any objective measure did not adopt the current federal lodestar practice. However, by stating that its initial inquiry was to decide whether or not to accept the federal lodestar method, and then by adopting a lodestar method, and this is speculation on my part, I think it opened the door for a smart lawyer at MnDOT to think, hey, if Cameron adopted the federal lodestar practice, and the federal lodestar practice doesn't permit contingent fee reimbursement, then we can make the argument that Cameron adopted the federal lodestar practice and will never have to pay attorney's fees based on a contingent fee. Counsel, do you agree that, um, that Cameron adopted a lodestar analysis? Yes, Your Honor. And in this case, did the district court determine a lodestar? Yes. What was the lodestar determined by the district court? The lodestar determined by the district court was the type the lodestar approved by this court in the Cameron decision. And that's to begin by looking at a reasonable number of hours, and the court, the district court, found that the number of hours were reasonable. 82 then, hours? That's correct. Yeah. Then to look at, a, or to determine a reasonable hourly rate, and the district court determined that there was a reasonable hourly rate in this case. And can you point me to the part of the district court's decision identifying the reasonable hourly rate? What the dollar value of that was? Yes. It doesn't appear in the decision. Well, how do we know what it is then? It's simple math. I mean, I set forth a pretty detailed affidavit that had, you know, all of the firm billing records and all of the hours and. I, and I appreciate that. Yes, it was detailed. Um, but how, how can we proceed if we don't know what the district court decided was a reasonable hourly rate within the Lodestar calculation? I mean, the district court didn't tell us. I guess all I can say is that, that it was mathematical. I mean, it, it. Well, what is mathematical is that you essentially got what your client asked for, which was $168,000, which was calculated on the basis of a hybrid fee agreement. Correct. But I'm, I'm asking how, how can the district court proceed without determining a reasonable hourly rate to be multiplied times the 82 hours? Well, the court, the district court stated that it determined that the hourly rate was reasonable. And can you point me to that particular statement? I, I see a statement, the hybrid fee arrangement is reasonable, but maybe you can point me to talking about your regular hourly rates. So the, the bottom of page two states that um, of, of the district court opinion states, here the court finds that the number of hours expended on this case was reasonable, especially considering the case span more than eight years. Attorney Gunn's hourly rate is typical for an attorney with the special expertise needed for such a matter and with good standing. And is that talking about your overall hourly rate or the hourly rate within the hybrid fee agreement? I can't state with certainty what she was referring to. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Second reason that I think we're back here on this issue today um, is not speculation on my part. And that is because there are, there are three separate and distinct lodestar methods that are employed by different courts in different kinds of cases. And, and frankly, I think MnDOT has done a masterful job of exploiting the confusion created by these different kinds of lodestar 
um, methods as evidenced by its, its victory in, in the Court of Appeals below. So what are the three different kinds of lodestar methods? Well, at one end of the spectrum is the current federal lodestar approach. And that is a two-part analysis. And the first part determines a reasonable number of hours and multiplies that by a reasonable hourly rate to arrive at a presumptive attorney's fee or a presumptive lodestar fee. The second part of the federal approach applies only in rare and exceptional cases to allow a multiplier to adjust the presumptive lodestar fee. Now, when MnDOT uses the term lodestar method, it seems to be referring to the, this federal method about half of the time. At the other end of the spectrum is the lodestar method adopted in Cameron. This is also a two-part analysis, but it's quite different from the federal lodestar two-part analysis. The first part is the same because you start out determining a reasonable number of hours and a reasonable hourly rate. Multiply those two together <clears throat> you know, to arrive at, at the product. The second part of the analysis, however, is that rather than adjusting that product only in rare and exceptional circumstances, in every case, the court is to determine the overall reasonableness of the award by considering the six Paulson factors, which include such things as the, <clears throat> excuse me, the nature and difficulty of the case, the results obtained, and the fee arrangement between the lawyer and the client. I should add that the Pharisee decision earlier this year confirmed that the Lodestar method is a two-step process and that in condemnation cases, the courts are to consider the six Paulson factors in determining reasonable attorney's fees. When MnDOT refers to the term Lodestar method, it never or virtually never is referring to the Lodestar method adopted in Cameron. Now the third kind of Lodestar method applied by the courts is found in the decisions like Milner, in which this court has awarded fees based on a state statute that is patterned on a federal law. These cases are somewhere between the federal Lodestar method and the Cameron Lodestar method. According to MnDOT, they involve a two-part approach, and the second part is the same as the federal approach because it applies only in rare and exceptional circumstances, and in those cases provides for a multiplier. But it's, it's the first part um, of the analysis that's really relevant here. And in the first part, the court determines the reasonable number of hours and the reasonable hourly rate, but in making those determinations, the court considers the six Paulson factors. In other words, part one of the Milner Lodestar analysis is parts one and two of the Cameron Lodestar analysis. For example, the court in Milner said that it would be permissible, even appropriate, to reduce the number of hours based on the results obtained by the plaintiff's counsel. Counsel, I understand your argument that essentially the Milner calculation is different than the Cameron calculation. You're saying you're different tests. I, I suspect the state's gonna disagree. But let's assume that that's the case. Milner was a fair labor standards case. Uh, Cameron was a condemnation case. Is there any principled reason why the calculation of attorney's fees in a fair labor standards case should be by a different formula than in a condemnation case? Um, <clears throat> to the extent that this court could conclude that a condemnation case, lodestar method in a condemnation case, would be more favorable to a party than in a fair labor standards case, yes, I think there are just two primary reasons. And the first one is that the reason... Why should we be more favorable well, favorable to which party? I'm, you're assuming you're talking about the the, uh, the landowner? Yes, my bias. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think it was the other way around. So what would be the principled reason why we should be more favorable to the owner in a condemnation case than to an employer in a fair labor standards case? Or excuse me, <clears throat> to an employee in a fair labor standards case. Right. Um, I think there's two primary reasons. And the first is that... Um, 
it was in the Dagg case, which was quoted in Milner, um, the court held that we, we do not consider um, contingent fees because we're concerned that they might result in um, unmeritorious claims being brought. And you can see in certain cases, you know, lawyers might go out and try and sign up a bunch of claims or a bunch of clients and, and bring claims that had, you know, limited potential for recovery if they could get a big contingent fee out of all of them. And, and that might apply in a Fair Labor Standards Act case. That's not true in a condemnation case. The property owner doesn't commence the action. It, I can't go out and recruit clients to have MnDOT, condemn, MnDOT or any other condemning authority um, condemn their properties. Um, there's no risk of property owners bringing non-meritorious claims because they don't bring the claims in the first place. The second reason is <clears throat> that property owners in condemnation cases don't receive a nickel in attorney's fees under Minnesota Statute 117.031 unless the condemning authority has brought what's sometimes referred to as lowball offers. If, if the condemning authority presents a fair offer that's within 20 or 40% of the final recovery in the case, the property owner doesn't get anything. So it, it's a different situation in condemnation cases than it is in um, under virtually any other fee shifting, sta fee shifting statute. With respect to the um, Lodestar method, would, set would it be okay um, if a party agreed to a 75% contingency fee? I think that's, there's two different issues there. The first one is, let's say it was a really tough condemnation case and the property owner wanted to hire the lawyer and agreed, you know, voluntarily agreed to pay a 75% contingency fee, yes. You know, they could recover it. The second part of that question, I think, is does the government have to pay a 75% contingency if the property owner prevails? Um, and the answer to that question is really going to depend on the facts of the case. Um, it will be determined by the six Paulson factors. And this court has consistently said that you don't look at just any one of those factors. You have to look at all six of them. And the nature of the fee agreement between the attorney and the client is just one of the six. So, so I can't answer that in the abstract. Counsel, I, um, I appreciate your distinction between condemnation proceedings and other kinds of proceedings. And I think that has some merit here. But why as a philosophical matter, would we not want to align our various attorney recovery, um, attorney fee recovery regimes such that um, the same principles apply. And I mean, that maybe that suggests that we should adopt the uh, federal lodestar approach formally and thoroughly. Um, maybe that's a deviant from Cameron, maybe it's not. But, but why should we not have a, a fairly consistent attorney's fee regime? Honestly, Your Honor, I don't feel qualified to tell you why as a philosophical matter this court should rule one way or the other. What I am here to tell you is that I sincerely believe that in Cameron, you did not adopt the federal lodestar um, approach and that under Cameron, um, the Court of Appeals decision was wrong and needs to be reversed. Beyond that, you know, you all have to decide what you think best. Counsel, can you just, what was the hourly rate you got? Just do the math for me. That I ended up receiving? Yes. Um, well, initially it was uh, slightly over $2,000 per hour. I suspect that after the fee application at the district court, the Court of Appeals appeal and this appeal, I'm something under 1000 But Well, if we're just looking at the district court's order, though, it's about $2,000 an hour. Yeah, it's slightly Make over. the case for why that's reasonable. Because I've been doing this for 37 years, and I've never hit a home run like that before. It's the nature of the beast. I've never had one that was 
half that big or even approaching half that big. I've had a bunch that were under what my hourly rate was. Um, you could look at Cameron itself. The hourly rate was higher than the contingent rate was. You could look at another case that Mr. Thompson and I cited in our briefs was um, state versus great, great River Resources. And the hourly rate in that was higher than the contingent fee was. You know, you don't always win. A, contingent fee does not equate to premium fees. There's a whole lot of cases where um, you get less. And this was, this case was a hole in one. And I don't think you, you, base your, you base your ruling or your decision based on the exception to the rule, which was this case. The ruling should be, should be based on the majority of the cases. And but doesn't that kind of go to that principle in DAG that, I mean, this was a hole in one. It kind of makes up for the other cases where you, the contingency fee was actually less than what would you, you have gotten an hourly rate. I mean, I think that's the whole reason we're looking at whether contingent fees are good in this case is because we, we want to reward you a, uh, we want to award you a reasonable fee for the work in this case and not whether you've hit a home run in this one and you were stiffed in other cases. Yeah, and I think that's a fair question to ask, and it, but it gets back to that, the philosophical issue that I'm not qualified to answer that for you. I'm really not. Well, to paraphrase, um, is the state in this case being asked to pay not just for the hole in one, but for any other double bogeys that you may have had in other cases? In other words, uh, why, why should the state be paying for the risk that you, you may have taken in other cases and it didn't work out? And while you're thinking about that, I think that's the rationale for the U.S. Supreme Court saying we're not, we're not awarding fees in fee shifting, uh, under fee shifting statutes based on a contingency fee agreement. I guess I, I don't see it that way. There, there were, before this court's decision in Cameron, there were four appellate court decisions in Minnesota that interpreted 117.031. And in, in some of those cases, hourly fees were higher, in some of them, um, contingent fees would have been higher, regardless of what the fee agreement was between the, the, um, the attorney and the client. And in all four of those cases, the same thing happened. The government argued in favor of whichever approach, hourly or contingent, would result in a lower fee, and the property owner argued in favor of whichever approach, hourly or contingent, would result in a higher fee. And, and the courts, courts sort of ended up um, splitting the difference in many cases. I think on balance they awarded 80-some percent of what the property owner um, was seeking, even if, even if, for example, in the, the um, State versus Great River Resources, the property owner had a contingent fee agreement. Um, the case went to a jury trial. There was a disappointing result from the property owner's perspective. The property owner was only entitled to uh, or the attorney's fees under the contingent fee agreement were only six or seven thousand bucks, but the attorney had thirty-five thousand dollars worth of time on the case. Um, in that case, Mindot argued that the attorney's fees should be based on the contingent fee because they were lower. Mr. Thompson says, "Well, it wasn't because they were lower; it was because it, we think that they should the fees should be based on the fee agreement between." the attorney and the client, which in this case was contingent. Well, if they would accept that same rationale in this case, I'd appreciate it, but that's not gonna happen. And, and, and the just, court in that case said- I'm sorry, go continue. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The court in that case disagreed with Mendot and it said, no, the, the nature of the fee agreement is only one of the factors that you're supposed to consider under Paulson. So we're not gonna limit the property owner's recovery to the six or $7,000. We're also not gonna give them the full 35,000 that their time would warrant. We're gonna kind of split the difference and award 25,000. So what I see historically is that the courts are trying to weigh all of the Paulson factors and arrive at, at something that's reasonably fair to both sides. In this case, I, I have to point out, 
I didn't have a purely contingent fee agreement with Mr. Smith. I didn't have a purely hourly fee agreement with Mr. Smith. You know, it was, it was a hybrid. So unlike all of the other cases where the parties argue, oh, it should be contingent or, oh, it should be hourly, um, here we, we sort of have the, the fairest example of, of a compromise between both of those because it was half hourly and half contingent. So I, I, I don't understand the question about is me not being forced to pay for other cases where I didn't do so well because of having hit a hole in one on this case. Okay. Um, can you, since the district court didn't provide us with a detailed Lodestar analysis, could you take us through what you think the correct calculation should be? We start with 82 hours, right? Mm -hmm. And we multiply times your reasonable hourly rate, which ranged from, I think, 350 to 415 or thereabouts. Something like that. And so you, would you agree the initial Lodestar amount is $34,000? If I were the district court judge and yes. I were looking at this, yes, that's how I, would, how I would begin the analysis. So the district court essentially took the 34,000 Lodestar and enhanced it by a multiple of a little more than five? Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure we were on the same, uh, same ground here. Yeah, that, that is my understanding of what happened, yes. All right, so why, in my opinion, um, is it important that there's these three different kinds of lodestar methods being applied by the different courts? It, and the reason is that, that MnDOT is arguing and the Court of Appeals agreed um, that Cameron adopted the, the current federal lodestar method, and that is simply not true. Cameron didn't cite any of the current federal lodestar cases and the only federal case it cited was, was Hensley, which is 35 years old, in which it cited in part for the proposition that the product of reasonable hours multiplied by a reasonable rate does not end the inquiry. There remain other considerations that may lead the district court to adjust the fee upward or downward. So, MnDOT makes arguments along the lines of, there is a strong presumption that the lodestar amount represents a reasonable fee. And the lodestar amount should be adjusted only in rare and exceptional circumstances. But those, those arguments and those quotations come either from current federal lodestar cases, which Cameron did not adopt, or they come from Milner-type lodestar cases, which Cameron also did not adopt for the purposes of de determining reasonable attorney's fees in condemnation cases. But when MnDOT quotes those decisions, it glosses over the fact that in the Milner case, um, the lodestar amount already considered or included consideration of these six Paulson factors. <clears throat> so what, is, what does all this mean in this case in which we're trying to decide if an award of attorney's fees was reasonable within the meaning of uh, 117? .031. It means that there's only one Minnesota Supreme Court case that explains how to determine attorney's fees under that statute in condemnation cases, and that is the Cameron decision. So I respectfully submit that the court should simply apply the plain language of that decision and not be distracted or misled by the other kinds of lodestar methods that are used in other kinds of cases. Counsel, I want to follow up on the Chief Justice's question asking you to um, justify a $2,000 an hour rate as reasonable. And your response to that was, well, we essentially um, aced the hole. And, but I don't see anything in the record kind of explaining how you aced the hole. What, to, to take a metaphor, what's the secret sauce here that got this extraordinary result? Um, or what's the, 24 herbs and spices that got to this result. You're a preeminent condemnation lawyer. There's just no question about that. Um, but, but why a five-time multiplier in this case as opposed to any other case? Um, what happened was that MnDOT did an initial appraisal of damages that was about $360,000 to $61,000. So is it just a bad appraisal by MnDOT? 
Yeah. So what what did what did you do in the case that would uh, warrant a five time multiplier um, to achieve the whole in one? I will be completely honest with you. Um, my contributions were, while undoubtedly wonderful, uh, it, it truly came down to the fact that, that MnDOT kept revising its, its appraisals upward and finally got to a point where it, it made sense for us to settle. And, and their, final, um, their final appraisal was $1,081,000, and at that point it didn't make sense for us to leave. Was there anything by way of creative legal argument or creative strategy that prompted this extraordinary result? No. Well, there may have been, and I may have forgotten, but <laughs> as I stand here today, no, I don't. There was. Cameron says that the Lodestar approach that must be used is the two-part approach in which the first part is to determine the reasonable number of hours in a reasonable hourly rate, and the second part is to adjust the product of those two numbers by the six Paulson factors. Six Paulson factors include the results obtained and the nature of the fee agreement. That is what the district court did in this case, and we respectfully request the court to reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals and to reinstate um, the decision of the district court in this matter. Thank, Thank you. you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Mr. Thompson. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. In Cameron, this court started, in the attorney's fees portion of Cameron, this court started with the threshold inquiry whether to adopt the federal Lodestar method. The court then had a three-sentence description of that method, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, beginning of the next paragraph, the court says, uh, we have applied the Lodestar method or the Lodestar approach in, in many cases and cites four cases. It cites Specialized Tours, Anderson, Milner, and Green, making no attempt to distinguish between those four cases as uh, creating different versions of Lodestar. And in the next sentence says that we have done so consistently when the statute requires the attorney fee to be, quote, reasonable, end quote. The next sentence, finding no persuasive, saying that, the, um, that Cameron presented no persuasive justification for adopting a different approach, and again, a different approach, not one of many different approaches. Uh, in the last sentence, the court says, uh, we therefore adopt the Lodestar method for 117. What was the award in Cameron? As I understand it from the briefs and reading the case, it was 33% of the, of the differential in what was re recovered. That, that's correct. Which the, is like the, a contingency fee. Well, the, the gross hours times firm's actual rate was $218,000, and making an adjustment for um, results obtained, the district court took that down to 162,000, which was the, con the contingent number. So it was considered reasonable in that case to give a, a what is typical contingency fee, which is 33%. Correct, although the, the district court, in making that reduction for results obtained, didn't have to land on the contingency. It could have been 10,000 higher, lower, 50,000 higher or lower, that would have been within the question. But it discretion. did, and we found that reasonable. Correct. And, and here, a 33% would be about $220,000. Um, yeah, I, I trust the court's math, yes. So why isn't 168000 reasonable? Because $168,000 um, ends up being $2,000 an hour. Well, I... But if we found 33, if we found a 33% reasonable in Cameron, why wouldn't it be reasonable in this case? Because the Lodestar method does not just uh, land on a contingency number. There's a, a process, and that process was adopted over something where you just land on a number in order to create predictable results and to cabin the discretion of the district court judges and to create a reviewable record. And so 
the fact that it happens to, sometimes the contingency number will land within the range of what Lodestar will produce doesn't mean we always get to land on a contingency number. Council, in thinking about, hi over here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> in thinking about um, whether it's appropriate to use contingency um, fees um, in these types of condemnation cases, um, the opposing council made kind of a good uh, argument about these are really different than other types of cases because you don't even get fees unless unless you've had a really good result here, unless the the Department of Transportation has come up, you know, from its initial fee. And then you can't go out and solicit people. I mean, it's the D Department of Transportation that says we want your property. Um, what's your response to that? In specialized tours, this court looked at from the gross hours worked, um, how to eliminate hours when, when the gross hours worked were on discrete claims and, and the party only prevailed on um, some of those claims, how to exclude those claims upon which the party wasn't successful. And that's consistent with, and that's exactly what the US Supreme Court did in Hensley. It's, it's perverse that we exclude unsuccessful claims in this case, but that we would include those unsuccessful claims in other cases, potentially against other parties. The, if done properly, the contingency fee that a, an attorney charges should balance out so as to not take advantage of the client. And so, uh, you know, for every $2,000 win, there should be several zero losses. And by the way, there's no record evidence of um, ever not recovering an attorney fee by counsel. Uh, counsel's affidavit. Maybe um, that just goes to show what a good attorney Mr. Gunn is. He doesn't have a record of losing. That, that could be. Um, but if that's the case, then there's definitely no basis for a $2,000 an hour award. What about, I mean, building on Justice Tudich's argument here, uh, what about the fact that, I mean, kind of from the plain language of this provision, one of the things the legislature was clearly thinking about was a concern that MnDOT was consistently lowballing. And so there's an underlying policy reason here that you might want to have some more flexibility in terms of higher attorney's fees perhaps in this particular context in order to provide an additional incentive for MnDOT to actually play fair. In this case, there is no, there's, there's not sufficient evidence to draw the conclusion that MnDOT lowballed. We, we only have evidence of MnDOT's single appraiser's opinion of value initially and when he revised his number. Is there um, anything in the legislative record that that's been pretty consistent uh, for MnDOT to do that over a long period of time and that was part of what the legislature was thinking about? Um, there were allegations of, of lowballing discussed when the legislation was presented. However, there's no evidence of lowballing um, in this case, and even a, by MnDOT, since the legislation has been enacted, uh, we don't know because because we've never seen Mr. Smith's appraisal. His appraisal might be at four hundred thousand dollars, which indicates that the the initial appraisal was actually pretty close to spot on, and it's the million dollars that's the mistake, and that would explain why we've never seen it. Uh, we we have no ability to compel production of that. At, in this stage of condemnation proceedings. So we don't know, there's no record evidence. And to, to say that the original appraisal is the one that's wrong is just pure unsupported speculation. Well, if you're speculating that maybe the landowner's appraisal was around $400,000, then this attorney really did get an extraordinary result in the case, right? Well, that is pretty extraordinary. It's, it's, it's not really tied to the attorney's performance though. In this case, the, the petition was filed in July of 2008, and the first billing by, by MGM was in September. And with the only um, decision of import being the decision to reject MnDOT's initial appraisal and then accept MnDOT's second appraisal occurring months before MGM is hired, it's not attorney performance, but it's Mr. Smith's decision on his own to do that. Does the record tell us why the appraisal went up so dramatically? It, it does not. So we don't know if the initial number was a MnDOT lowball number or 
that some circumstance changed in connection with the value of the property that, I mean, that's quite an extraordinary increase from an initial appraisal to a final appraisal, isn't it? Well, within, within appraisals, there are some very wide swings and uh, the only other evidence of MnDOT appraisals in this record is within Mr. Gunn's second affidavit where he points out that MnDOT's certified appraisal was 1.2 million and then two different appraisers came in and said 500 and 600,000, which would uh, be the exact opposite of a lowball offer. And so remind, me, remind me what the number was in MnDOT's initial appraisal. The initial appraisals uh, were 361 rounded. And we, we don't know how that compares to their, their appraisal because it hasn't been produced, it's not part of the record, and they bear the burden of proof here. How many appraisals were there? Well, there's two parcels. So we have two different appraisals and we add the numbers together. So 361 is the number, the two appraisals added together. It's, it's uh, What's the 1.2 million and the 500,000 you're just talking about? No, those are for a different, on a different action but those were included within Mr. Gunn's affidavit to the district court, his, his second affidavit to the district court on the attorney's fees motion. So that's the only other evidence in the record of MnDOT appraisals is that other case and then the appraisals here and, and only MnDOT's appraisals in both cases. Uh, when, when this court in Cameron said we adopt the Lodestar method, uh, the court didn't say we're selecting among different versions it says we're not adopting a different version, and it had listed Specialized Tours, Anderson, Milner, and Green. Of those four cases, only Milner has substantive analysis of a step two multiplier. Uh, there was no, no request for a multiplier in Cameron. Cameron started with the 218 gross hours times actual rate, there was no request for a multiplier in green. Green started with $231,000. The district court knocked it down because of paralegal time down to 221. So neither of those cases presented occasion for this court to consider a multiplier or to provide a detailed description of how a multiplier works. So, so under Cameron, I'm trying to understand the test and when the court looks at the Paulson factors. So is it your argument that the court would not look um, that the court would not get to step two unless somebody specifically asks for a multiplier? And, and then can you just go over where, it seems to me that some of the confusion that comes out of Cameron is because the court suggests that the Paulson factors can be used at both steps of the analysis, step one and step two. Yes, so in the Cameron decision, there are three sentences describing the Lodestar method. And you know, uh, decades of jurisprudence distilled down to three sentences. Um, the first sentence just set, describes step one, hours times rate. The second sentence says we consider, quote, all relevant circumstances, end quote, when considering hours and rate, citing to Paulson and Milner. That, uh, that quote from Paulson and that quote from Paulson used in Milner describes the six Milner factors. And so the court says we use these six Paulson factors to determine hours and rate. Then the next sentence it says, and then we consider overall reasonableness using, and then it lists the, the Paulson factors. And so that third sentence read in a vacuum, especially with the use of the word then, has led to readings that we consider the Paulson factors in, in step two instead of step one. Um, the thing is that that completely contradicts the sentence before and the sentence that follows. And Milner is the first case by this court to use Paulson within Lodestar. And it's squarely within step one, in the step one analysis within Milner. And even if we go back to Hensley, and Hensley has adopted in specialized tours, only one portion of one of the steps was in step two, everything else of Paulson would have been in step one. And so to somehow switch all of Paulson to step two um, without explanation, without announcement, and in a way that contradicts everything that's been said before um, is the reading you have to give to, to get the district court's result. So counsel, uh, opposing counsel agreed the initial lodestar amount is 
$34,000, uh, which would be his regular hourly rate times 82 hours. Would you agree that his client is entitled to some kind of enhancement for the results obtained, whether this was a hole-in-one or, or merely a birdie, um, that this was an extraordinary result and the award should be somewhat larger than $34,000. The results obtained factor as described in Milner is a measurement not from the, the condemner's number up, the defendant in most of these cases number up, but from the claimant's number down. And so the record doesn't even have the evidence necessary to do a proper results obtained analysis. Secondly, you would have to look, and, and you need more evidence than this is a big number. You would need evidence to show that this is atypical. You need some sort of evidence to show the rate at wait, which- Wait a minute, the initial appraisal was 361,000. The, the number that was obtained by stipulation was 1.081 million, I think. Am I right on the second number? Yes. All right, which is almost a three times increase. Isn't that a pretty extraordinary result from beginning to end? Your Honor, the higher the state's base number gets, the wider the swings of numbers. And exactly. And with the other case, the only other case in the record here, even the state's own appraisals had a, a $700,000 swing, but downward in that case. And just showing you just how imprecise appraisal work can be. Uh, we were often told by the appraisers when they testify, it's an art, not a science. And uh, I suspect some of the words you're using right now may come back to haunt you later on when you're dealing with condemn, uh, with landowner attorneys about how imprecise all this is. But in this case, it went from, it, it tripled, did it not? It did. And, and uh, Mr. Gunn's client is not entitled by way of an award of attorney's fees for that unusual result? Well, you use the word unusual and, and to support that, you'd actually need some record evidence. So some, you're telling us it's typical for a MnDOT appraisal to, to triple over the course of time? Well, you say typical, um, it's not unheard of. Is it unusual? Uh, it is unusual. Okay. Okay. I'm still back on these Paulson factors and step one and step two. So I've. You know, the Paulson factors, I do see that most of them can be considered in step one because they look at the reputation, experience of the attorneys, and that would go to the hourly fee. But what about the whether the fee is fixed or contingent? I mean, that, that was a Paulson factor, and I don't see how that would be considered in step one. Well, uh, the agreement of the parties is the Paulson factor where you could consider contingency, um, but that would be considered in step one where you're looking at uh, attorney rates within the market rates. And so that could be a basis for shifting within market rates, uh, up or down, depending on how the court views it. The, you know, when, a, when a client enters into a contingency agreement, um, they're exchanging one risk for another, right? They're, they're changing the, the, they're giving away the risk of um, of possibly having to pay uh, a very high number, like $2,000 an hour, and in exchange, they're gaining the possibility that they, they might not have to pay anything at all. Uh, that's outside the consideration of Lodestar, where, the look is, where the, we're supposed to look at hours reasonably expended and market hourly rates. And so it, it is outside of what Lodestar has, has stood for. And, uh, for the Supreme Court to reject it in um, in DAG, for the reasons stated in that case, makes sense because otherwise uh, we're looking at a whole different inquiry and we're, we're shifting the responsibility to pay onto a party that has no responsibility for those losses or maybe succeeded in those other cases and now has to pay for them anyway, uh, if in fact the, the contingency is correctly set. And we're, we're not bound by DAG on that, but you're saying that we, in order to be consistent with the federal uh, approach to, to Lodestar, um, we should um, get rid of that Paulson factor, contingent or the contingent fee factor? No, it, it's, just, it's properly considered in step one and can be used to shift attorney hours, attorney hourly rates within the range of market rates. And we have a range here of market rates 
Um, I, I believe the lowest number listed for a lead council was 355 and that the highest was 530 an hour. At, uh, um, by the time we get to the last year, it was 430 to 530. So we have, you know, we have $100 per hour range there to, for a district court to, to move within. And any one of those policy factors, and particularly the last three, go to hourly rate and, and could help the district court find the proper number within that range. As I'm looking at, as I look at the Cameron case itself, so there's all this kind of preliminary language where we talk about federal lodestar and what that means, et cetera, et cetera. But then when I get to what actually happened in the case, I see no indication that the district court in that case actually did the fees time hour or the hourly hours times hourly rate calculation. It looks like in that case, the court started with the fee agreement, analyzed the Paulson factors and said under these Paulson factors, we need to reduce that rate. So kind of setting aside the preliminary language, the great language we have in a couple paragraphs about how this process works, if you actually look at what happened in Cameron, am I, un if, am I misunderstanding uh, what actually happened in the district court that this court approved in Cameron? No, I think you're correct. The district court in Cameron did not apply Lodestar. And we approved that? This court then ran the analysis through the Lodestar prism and, and approved it. And I, but, it but, you, but we didn't ever come up with what the hours times hourly rate was. That calculation was never done in Cameron, right? Correct. So how can we say that that's required under the Lodestar factor for this particular statute? Well, uh, this court and other appellate courts have a long tradition of not remanding on attorney fee cases to avoid the prolonged litigation to, to provide that satellite litigation over attorney fees. And uh, I, commendably, this court decided to end the Cameron case. Um, and, but once the Paulson factors are done and applied within step one, you have the presumptive lodestar amount that, and under Milner, um, is only, only modified upward or downward in those very rare circumstances. But that didn't happen in Cameron. And so setting aside Milner, what we approved in Cameron was a district court decision that looked at the, the, the fee agreement and said, okay, this is our starting place, not hours times hourly rate. And then the, then the district court kind of went through the Paulson factors based on the fee agreement, which in this case would be the, the fee agreement that, that Mr. Gunn entered with his client, and then run through the, which is exactly, I think, what the district court did in this case. Start with the fee agreement, consider if that's reasonable under the, the Paulson factors. So, how, so why, why did the, what the district court did here not exactly consistent with what happened actually on the ground in Cameron? Well, if, if what actually happened on the ground in Cameron as far as what was affirmed is contrary to the description of Lodestar that the court in its holding adopted. Well, the holding is what happens with the actual facts of the case. What we say generally about what the law is doesn't mean anything unless it actually applies to the holding, right? Well, in, in the holding itself where the, where the results obtained factor is applied by the Supreme Court in Cameron in approving the district court's Paulson analysis, there's a site to Paulson, but there's also a site to Milner at, at the very point where that reduction is made. And so as long as we're looking at just that, that moving part, that moving part stamps itself with Milner and, and leaves us with the conclusion that Milner is the basis for looking at, at the, the, the very detailed description of the Lodestar approach in Milner versus any of the, the shorter thumbnail descriptions is what we look to. Council, in the district court, what position did the state take as to what the fee award should be? Uh, we, we took the position that it should be the lodestar amount of 34,133. With no enhancement for results in, obtained? Correct. And, and Your Honor, the, there is no record evidence to, su to support that. Um, there is no ba basis for comparison. There is no... Um, no number of theirs to even look at to make that comparison because uh, as I said and described in Milner, it's a look at their number down. The, the look at the, the state's number up occurs in deciding even uh, primary eligibility, preliminary eligibility for the fee reimbursement. And, and we conceded that they achieved the 40% threshold. 
Explain to me again why the uh, comparison is the look down that you describe. What the what's the authority for that? Um, it's cited in Milner, and Milner is citing a U.S. Supreme Court case, and I'm going to screw up the pronunciations like Farrar, F-A-R-R-A-R, and the the thought is that we're looking at at what the landowner, well, the landowner in our case in Farrar, the claimant sought versus what the claimant obtained, and that's that's where the measurement occurs. You know, and the argument in Cameron that we shouldn't consider results obtained because it's already factored into the 20% and 40%, which was the primary appeal um, on the attorney's fees argument, this court noted that there's, there's a difference and that the, the analysis of the state's number up occurs in that threshold eligibility requirement. And so uh, we should treat them differently. The statute put them in different positions and as does Milner and the Supreme Court precedent cited therein. So how, if there's no other appraisals, how did we get from 400,000 to a million? The, the state has its updated appraisal. It's, the state's appraiser changed his mind and went from 361,000 up to a million dollars. We, we have no other appraisals to, to see which of those two numbers was, was right, which was wrong. Uh, so there was a million dollar appraisal in this case? Yes. Okay. And, and this case settled for MnDOT's number, MnDOT's revised number. And we, we don't know if their number was higher or lower. I rationally have to assume their number was lower, otherwise they would have sought more, but we, we don't know, we can only speculate. And it's not in the record. Now, we heard about the state's position in Great River. The, the state's position is not that we switch between low, uh, contingency or, or lodestar depending on the results of the case. The state's position is that this is reimbursement to a landowner and that to award them more than they owe is a windfall to the landowner, which is exactly what happened in Great River. Uh, in Great River, Great River owed its attorney $6,000 and it received 24. So Great River has 18,000 extra dollars in its pocket from the state and just a, a Well, but in this case, case, in this case, as I understand the facts, Mr. Gunn's client paid the attorney's fees uh, pursuant to the fee agreement, right? That's correct. So this isn't, this isn't one of these attorney's fee cases where we're speculating about what the ultimate number is. We know what it was here. Correct, and there was no speculation in Great River either. We knew what the number was. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Your time has expired. Mr. Gunn, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Actually, I have nothing further to add, but I'd be happy to, to answer any questions um, that may have arisen during Mr. Com Mr. Thompson's comments. Looks like we're good, counsel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.